Hello and welcome to today's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. There are many imbalances, uncertainties uh, facing the world at the moment, and today we're going to ask the question, which economic imbalance will be the first to crumble? On the agenda, we'll have a look at the imbalances in the US, Europe and emerging markets. Then we'll take another look at the unfolding Chinese property crisis. Next, we'll look at the extremely high Australian household debt. And then, as always, at the end, we'll look at the, uh, the market implications. My name's Sam Kerr. I'm the Senior Financial Advisor at Nucleus Wealth. Today, as always, I want to welcome uh, one of the founders and the Chief Investment Officer at Nucleus Wealth, Damien Klassen. Damo, welcome. Hey, Sam. Hey, gang. Good, thanks. Uh, we're also joined by one of the other key founders and our Chief Strategist, David Llewellyn-Smith. Dave, welcome. G'day, Sam. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So just a quick reminder before we get started, if you enjoy our content, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell below to be notified when we go live or have a new episode recorded. Alternatively, you can follow us on your preferred podcast platform as our show is available on all the majors. Uh, you can also ask any questions for those of you watching live and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. And as always, if you'd like to look at the slides in more detail, we'll post them in the show notes this afternoon, and you can view those uh, in the episode at nucleuswealth.com forward slash webinars. So now we've got that housekeeping out of the way, we'll get started. So Damo, I'll hand it over to you to lead us away. Yeah, so this is the, the second part of the, uh, the the look we had last week at, at uh, central banks. And so the, so the idea is... Um, uh, what we're really focused in on is that we've, we've obviously got all our central banks ratcheting up interest rates at the moment, and the the historical um, tendency tends to be that uh, central banks keep in, increasing rates until something breaks, and, and at that point, then they 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 slow down and 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 or, or pause and, and wait to see how much damage, and and then at some stage reverse. And so, uh, you know, given that, and um, a little bit of excitement this week with uh, with. Uh, Credit Suisse as, as being well, is that something that was that 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 is broken? Um, we thought we'd focus in on um, sort of five different areas. Um, the, so we're going to look at the imbalances in the US, uh, imbalances in Europe, imbalances in China, um, emerging markets, and then Australia. Um, we have left Japan as sort of I guess as, as a major economy out of that, but um, I guess partly because we didn't have a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, we think. You know, something that pops up is more likely to be in one of these other other areas. So, um, with that background, um, yeah, I guess I want to start off on uh, in the US and and US corporates. I might let Dave. I might hand across to you and I'll jump in where I need to. Sure. So, well, the good news, or at least different news, on this cycle is that. Uh, US imbalances are, are not critical at this point. Uh, and so uh, as the Federal Reserve hikes rates, it does have the highest inflation uh, worldwide or has has done. And um, part of that is a very tight labor market, but I wouldn't characterize that as, a, as an imbalance. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, the, traditionally the, the areas of, uh, of Overextendedness, if you like, that you would expect to see in the US, uh, the US at this stage of the cycle, like at a mature cycle, are, are not there. Uh, so, US corporate lending, for instance, generally spikes into the end of the cycle. Uh, at the moment, yes, the, the ratios of debt to GDP and other things are at record highs, but in fact, in part owing to all of the fiscal transfers that came with COVID, uh, you know. The, the interest rate burden for corporations is quite low, very low, in fact, for late cycle. And so it doesn't look like there's an accident coming there. Most certainly there will be accidents if the Fed keeps hiking, uh, but not a systemic accident. Mm. Um, and and so you, can, you can see this chart from Pantheon, which to just give you some grasp of how huge the fiscal transfers were from, from uh, the US government to to corporations and you can you can see uh, almost uh six percent of gdp was transferred to corporates as cash virtually so uh it, it they were given a lot of money a lot of support 
Um, yeah. And so, so it's worth noting, sort of along those lines, Dave. You spoke about sort of being there being sort of record high debt levels to GDP, but it's but it's record low interest burdens to, to GDP. Yeah. And so, um, <clears throat> your corporates tend to borrow on sort of a, a three to five year basis. Tends to be what most of them sort of um, uh, so the, the the length of the, the the debt that they take out. So if you, if you sort of took a view that look, um, higher interest rates are going to flow through to corporates over the next two to three years. As you sort of get that average um, maturity of of, of of the debt, then um, you can sort of see even that even if we went to sort of quite high interest rates, it's going to take a couple of years for this to flow through uh, and start becoming a, a broader spread. Now, obviously, as David said, there'll be there'll be ones that'll pop up where companies you know have got their they're, they're just rolling off and and they've got to go from a lower rate to a higher rate, and they're really depending upon those low interest rates to 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 um, to keep the whole thing going. And this is going to—it's going to hit profitability as well as these interest rates rise. Um, but uh, you know, as you can sort of see from that chart, it's—it's—it's um, it, it's a little while away. So, so yeah. So if, if we're not saying there's you know there's no chance of US corporate, it just seems like in, in the short term, um, and, or you know in over the next year or so, um, mm. there doesn't seem like a lot that's going to break there. Yeah, I mean there 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 are always. You know your your Worldcoms and Enrons and what have you at any given cycle. So we'll certainly, I think, see some some uh, bankruptcies, but mm. um, just not a systemic crisis. So, uh, so uh, the second area of concern that, that you know would would readily spring to mind for for viewers would would be uh, U.S. households, of course, which is you know what uh, dragged the world into the GFC after their crazed housing bubble, uh, you know, leading up to 2008. <clears throat> and the good news keeps coming there, which is that, you know, uh, post the near bankruptcy of the US banking system, uh, US households deleveraged enormously uh, and remain pretty deleveraged to this day. And this is despite the fact that we've had a ripping house price boom in the US over the last two to three years. Uh, which is a bit of a mystery, to be perfectly honest. And we've certainly had rising mortgage get debt, but not so fast that it that it uh, really, you know, caused uh, any critical uh, ratios to blow out. And so again, you know, even if in as interest rates rise, we are starting to see naturally um, U.S. house prices roll over in the last few months and starting to fall, uh, just as as uh, you know, debt um, ca capacity is reined in with higher interest rates, but uh, it's again, there's no real kind of macro scale imbalance here to adjust, and so we could well see house prices fall for a couple of years without necessarily triggering triggering any kind of reckoning in the banking system. Uh, and so, you know, again, this is not an area that look looks like it, it's imminently going to cause any kind of crisis. Um, so the area where we did see uh, some really extended ratios uh, and some some all-time high prices was was in fact the equity market in the US, um, and I think it's fair to say that this was something of a monetary bubble uh, with all of the COVID support and and in fact uh, all of the monetary support that came after the GFC, you know, sort of instituted this uh, new era of high valuations for a decade or high multiples for equities, uh, which really blew off with COVID. And we hit, you know, as you can see from this chart, we, we hit, uh, you know, um, all-time high multiples on the S&P 500. Um, and that has now substantially corrected. Uh, so this is one, one adjustment that is underway. And I do think that uh, it will have macro implications this. I mean, uh, there was some debt behind it, margin lending, what have you. Um, uh, but stock markets tend, bubbles tend to, as they deflate, rather than hitting banking systems or leading to uh, debt crises, they tend to just land on consumption ultimately uh, and corporate investment as well, um, <clears throat> just because of wealth effects and stuff and, you know, declining. Uh, 401ks uh, and uh, which is you know the US superannuation system uh, so 
Uh, I do expect this to continue to fall, and uh, there is a reasonable correlation between US household confidence uh, and and consumption growth and the stock market. So, you know, I think I think that this is probably already having an impact at the margin on US consumption, and will continue to do so, especially if it keeps falling. So. This is probably, uh, you know, the key kind of financial imbalance, I think, in the US at the moment that is already unwinding and will have further impacts. Uh, and so it's worth noting as well that, um, you know, as we've been speaking about for months now, is that the uh, the earnings part of that is still hasn't really been, it has rolled over a little bit, but it hasn't really been hit yet. Um, so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is you could see the, the current multiple safe staying roughly where it is, um, for you know, for a year or two, and you can still see 10, 20% downside in terms of um, uh, stock markets just because the earnings are actually falling at that yeah. at that point. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so assuming that that the stock market or just rising interest rates and, and increasing interest rate burden uh, does ultimately uh, land on the economy in in a demand sense. Uh, which I think is the base case. That's what the Federal Reserve wants to see. And so we, we think that they'll persist until it happens. Then you have a second kind of cyclical imbalance in the economy there, which is which is pretty important for the global economy. And that this is not your typical macro imbalance that you would see, you know, like over overextended debt ratio, et cetera. This is more, which is sort of considered structural. This is more cyclical in nature. Uh, and it's inventories, as simple as that, where we've been through this huge supply side squeeze through COVID uh, with, you know, inflation running wild, nobody able to get a hold of anything in their supply chains and it triggered, you know, an enormous hoarding cycle in uh, wholesale inventories in the US, uh, which means basically everyone's just sitting on piles and piles of stock of everything. And so you can imagine there are two things that are happening right now as the Federal Reserve continues to tighten. One is um, that demand is starting to diminish, you know, as as the, the rising interest rates have their desired effect. Uh, but the other is that we've had this supply side squeeze for long enough now that there's been, you know, lots of attempts to invest into fixing it. Um, uh, and, you know, then you've got a, a, a diminution in expected demand uh, and so suddenly you've got supply side uh, excess, right, in the supply chains. And so we're seeing this in crashing, uh, crashing, you know, uh, logistical rates in shipping and everything else. Um, we're starting to get profit warnings. We had an absolute classic from Nike last week or this week, actually, that, that completely beautifully summarised this. They just said we're, we're just sitting on piles and piles of shoes. We need to move them. Um, and so two things happening happen then. You get a whole discounting wave, uh, which helps fight inflation, obviously. But the other thing is they don't order anything for a while. Um, and that that is a global shock. In fact, that is the key cycle that drives all recessions is, in fact, this inventory cycle. So on this chart here, this is just wholesale US inventories. You can see that the accumulation over the last kind of two years has been unprecedented. Uh, and because the supply side stuff is now collapsing, all of the tightness, there's no need to sit on this hoard anymore. I mean, yes, there are still some concerns around uh, conflict with China, et cetera, et cetera, sort of longer term stresses on supply chains and risk. And, but, and, the, and companies might hold a bit more in their inventories than what they used to. But that's, and they may, yes. But yeah. right now they're just sitting on a mountain an inventory yeah. this is an inventory mountain so yeah and, so, and i guess i guess from that perspective it's like going well if, if you used to keep an inventory of say 100 units and, and now you want to keep an inventory of 200 units um you know we've gone to 300 and so yes. you still you still need to wind it back it might end up being above what it used to be but but yeah yeah most likely going to decline from here so th this is what has been called the the People might remember that the, the all of the supply side squeezes on the way up, which is like you, nobody can get anything. Everybody panics. Everyone piles in at once. And the further up the supply chain you go, the worse it gets in terms of tightness and uh, lack of availability. It's called the bullwhip effect. And so we're now seeing the reverse bullwhip, bullwhip effect uh, as everybody's got too much of everything and prices are starting to collapse across the supply chain. 
and so there's going to be destocking. Now that is just classic recessionary dynamic where you have destocking in a major centre of demand, and then that just ripples out through the global supply chains, and factories um, have to shut because they don't get any orders for whatever period of time it takes to destock, which might just be three months. Inventory cycles are not long recessions, um, you know, but they they can be deepish. Uh, but they don't come with the typical kind of financial, um, financialized era recessions where you have balance sheet consequences. These are yeah. just basic, you know, run of the mill um, cyclical recession dynamics. And and they're and they're, they're, the, they're usually the trigger for something bigger. So so you know, they can the, be yes Dal, in the Dalio version of long cycles and short cycles. See the inventory triggers are these short little cycles that go up and down, and then you're you're in this big overall cycle. And 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 what we're the the other things we're looking at are really um, is this something so so say corporate debt just builds up and builds up and builds up over a long period of time and then yeah. uh, and you go through these various inventory cycles and then one inventory cycle will be enough that actually spurts you know um, turns the corporate debt into a corporate debt crisis yes and, and I guess what we're saying is that from of, of the ones we've looked at so far um, you know this inventory cycle does look like it's turning and it's gonna it, it's ready to trigger something. It just yeah. doesn't look like the debt is at a point where it's going to get triggered. In the so, US. In the US, yes. Yeah, yeah. so that, that's a really useful definition, uh, distinction, actually. Long cycle and short cycle. Yeah. Um, so it looks like the US is in for a short cycle shock. Like, yeah. So... Uh, yeah. And, so and that, actually, that, sorry, the only thing that could, that could potentially turn this into a bigger one, though, is that, you know, we spoke about this being an inventory super cycle. And as you know, as you can see from that chart, it's obviously, you know, way bigger than we've seen any time over the last sort of 40 odd years. Um, if it does go back from, I spoke about going from 100 units to, two, to to 300 units and then back to 200 as being this new sort of level that you're going to to, to, to get at. If it actually went back to 100, that, that's probably, that's a that's much deeper recession. We're just not expecting that at the moment. Yeah. So. And we well, are expecting uh, inventories to stay a, bit, uh, a little bit fuller than what they used to be. A little bit, but but not hugely. I mean, if in your example, 100 and, you know, maybe they started stocking 200, I'd expect yeah. them to go back to 110. You know, like uh, I, right now, there's not a lot of reason uh, as a supply side chain, the supply, supply chain uh, collapses into excess to actually hold or or hoard much. You're really talking longer structural risks like, you know, Chinese conflict in Taiwan or what have you. So, um, I, you know, I would actually expect a lot of this inventory to get run down. So, so anyway, so the US looks like relatively okay in terms of, um, you know, these various risks, big short cycle risk though, and that's where, you know, we need to sort of pan out and look at the other imbalances around the world because, of course, a destocking of US inventory is a an export trade shock for anyone who's exporting into the US. And um, there are some very large economies that are doing that. So the first one we should look at is is Europe. Uh, and this is, you know, Europe is is very stressed. Um, and, you know, probably already in recession, if, if not also certainly awfully close with its war and energy shocks, uh, which, you know, are pretty incredible delivering, you know, huge, huge kind of price hits to everyone from households right through to corporates um, in terms of electricity bills, gas bills, um, oil bills. Uh, and, you know, so domestic demand is already really weak in, in Europe. And that comes with, you know, the usual suite of political pressures in Europe. So, you know, we've just had an Italian election swing, swing pretty hard to the right. Uh, you know, following that, Russia has cut off gas to Italy, and so you know, you can see how 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 hairline cracks in the European project could widen in this context, uh, and could result in in heavens know what. I mean, I'm not saying there's going to be a re-denomination in Italy, but uh, you know, some of these risks are going to come to bear on spreads market pricing and yields and stuff they already are um, and so you know something may crack there and um the uh, europe's going to be hit by this unwind coming out of the us 
This, this is all assuming the Fed, the Fed persists. Yeah, um, and this this is sort of similar to to what we were seeing last time, wasn't it? In you know, back at the European crisis before, in terms of it being that um, if if people are if if the the grassroots population is upset with what's happening and they're not quite sure, you know, they, they just know the economy is not right and that things aren't working, and and they vote a party in and the party, you know, then then drifts back into the mainstream then um, the possibility is then they go, well, let's just vote for a more extreme party this time. And that's sort of been mm -hmm. what's happening in in in, um, in in Italy where you get the right-wing parties and then your right-wing parties you know, promising a whole bunch of stuff and then they get sort of neutered by by the central government and so then we get a more extreme version sort of gets voted in and, mm -hmm. and the same thing, same process will, will most likely play out. And so the question is, um, yeah, do, do you just get a surprise somewhere where, um, uh, and we saw it in Greece last time, but did you get a surprise somewhere where, where um, just you know real fringe parties pop up with with um, um, some some sort of crazier uh, notions about what they're going to do? Well, yes. and, and arguably we saw, we saw that we saw that in in in, in the UK last week. Yes, quite, uh, yes, quite right. The, we did the fringe the fringe element of of a mainstream party took over and put in some crazy things and yeah. yes, and are now and then we'll scramb scrambling backwards. Um, mm. Uh, but yes, those risks are, are present in, in in Europe. So, in this sense, I guess we've got short cycle imbalance that's going to land on Europe, and some more long cycle risks there, politically, uh, and also in the banking system, um, which is you know where we come to Credit Suisse. Um, you want to tackle this one, Damo? Yeah, more okay yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Look, I guess a um, Credit Suisse. Look, maybe maybe it is the next Lehman. Maybe it isn't. Um, I, I think the you know the moment it doesn't seem to be um, uh, enough there to to really send it under. But um, but you know markets in, in the way you, you do get um, you know what they call crisis crises of liquidity and crises of solvency. And so um, if, if markets all if markets decide that that this company's you know illiquid and and shouldn't be lent to and and too dangerous to do stuff then then it runs into the problem that you know when credit swiss goes to refinance its existing stuff it can't refinance it and then it does start to create problems and so um so you can't say you know you never say never on these things but at, at, at a face value just given the fundamentals it doesn't look like it's going to be um uh it's been more some own goals but I guess it creates a, a a um oh sorry and the other part is you know will they get bailed out by if, if there were problems would they get bailed out by um uh by, by governments and, and the answer again is probably yes um but what i wanted to highlight is that bank profitability in europe in general is very low and, and i've got a um return on assets um but you can measure this only one of a number of different ways and what you tend to see what we've tended to see is we've got these um you know, there's very much over-leveraged um, uh, European banks that have been getting support from um, the the ECB because they've because because uh, interest rates have been so low. So they've actually been uh, if they go out and, and give a mortgage to somebody, say in France, um, the ECB is, is topping that mortgage up, is basically giving the banks extra money for lending. Um, yeah, they've had negative interest rates, and so uh, so so there's already widespread support. Um, Bank profitability is very low, despite that uh, widespread support, and and um, you know, debt levels are quite high. So, so we've seen a number of issues with Deutsche Bank over over the time. Um, you've seen sort of bailouts and 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 bail-ins in in various banks. I guess what we're coming to is, um, you know, if you're going to pick a banking area where something could go wrong, uh, Europe's probably it, uh, just given the the nature of the the, the companies there how they've been performing over the last sort of decade or more and, and the amount of debt that's there. So not to say you couldn't have a banking crisis anywhere. So as you know, as these rates ratchet up, we really are going to see whether there's some, um, you know, some banks around the world that have been doing things that, that um, are fine at lower rates, but, but at higher rates all of a sudden don't make sense and, and can lose a lot of money very quickly. Um, but the, um, uh, yeah, if, if, if you're going to, if you're, if you're going to um, you know, put it, put the odds, the odds are that it, it, it's it's a European bank rather than somewhere else. And, and it's also noted, worth noting some of these investment banks. Um, you know, there's there's strategies out there that they will have been involved in um, that relying very much on on lower rates, and they're the ones that could be blowing up. Um, you know, as as we see. And so, um, 
you know, you, you pick an investment bank as being more likely to run into problems than, than the um, the more traditional mortgage banks at the moment. <clears throat> Quite right. So, uh, so we have, you know, uh, uh, a US economy that's actually going okay at the moment, but is going to come under increasing strain with, with the Federal Reserve's tightening, which we think is going to persist for a while yet. Um, We've got a bit of a sticky inflation problem there, running at about 5% annualised over the last few months. Uh, and then we have a Europe already in recession and at risk of external shock, as, as well as, you know, whatever long cycle shocks may appear. Uh, and so what you basically got there is the two largest demand sources in the global economy in jeopardy uh, at, at, you know, different slightly different or mismatched timeframes and issues. Uh, but what it presents for uh, the emerging market world led by China is uh, is a, a possible enormous uh, external shock in the form of falling exports. Uh, and so we'll just swing over to, to have a look at the Chinese imbalances. So uh, China you know, actually tried to to do some very sensible things during the pandemic. It used what was an enormous export boom, uh, you know, driven by the big stimuluses in in developed markets, uh, which, as we know, were very goods goods based during the pandemic, and then have swung more towards services as as things have owned, uh, opened up. Um, and they've been very much benefited by you know, what we were talking about before with the inventory builds and the supply chain stresses that's boosted all of their exports for the last few years. And so the, China's tried to use this external boom for a bit of internal deleveraging, because as we know, it does have huge debt imbalances internally uh, in all sorts of areas, especially uh, state-owned enterprises, but arguably as well in households these days, which accumulated mm. quite a lot of mortgage debt. Mm. Uh, and, and I guess it's worth noting that you know the Chinese debt. When you when you look at Chinese household debt relative to the world, it doesn't look that high. Like it's sort of sixty percent, and in Australia is probably got double that, and and yeah. um, the US is like at eighty odd percent and things like that. But the thing is, for an emerging market, it's extremely high. It's right at the top, you know, yeah. off the end of the scale for versus emerging markets because it's and, it's and one rare. thing to go. I've got a I've got somebody who's on a you know. Uh, $80,000 as an average yeah. wage and, and and got a big mortgage and you're like, okay, they can afford to eat and, and, and still do all these other things. But when you say, when you've got somebody on an average wage of fifteen dollars or $20,000 and they've got these massive um, debts, that's where it's a, um, uh, yeah. yeah, that's become, becomes an issue. And also yeah. the, the Chinese household sector as a percentage of the total um, sector is very small as a country. So, yeah. so if you look at say the US or Australia or any of these developed markets, the, the household sector is, is is the largest sector in the economy, whereas in in um, China it's actually very small. So so yeah, so that they're so, so you can yeah. certainly cut the figures to say oh it doesn't look like it's that bad, but you can also cut it a number of ways to to show that um, yeah Chinese household sector is very much indebted. Well, the debt to income ratios are very stretched already. Um, mm. So, and you and you're right. Like it, you know, uh, viewers may at least Australian viewers may recall you know that. Uh, uh, during our own uh, semi-debt reckoning in, what was it, 2018 at the Royal Commission, 2019, can't remember. Uh, you know, there was discussion in the courts about um, households being able to shed their their uh, habits of Wagyu and Shiraz in order to pay back their mortgages. But if you're, you know, if you're on $10,000 a year instead of 80, then obviously that's a little more difficult. Probably not um, eating quite as much wagyu. No, you're probably not. But yeah. it's it's just your all of your your ratios are more extended and it's more difficult to cut. So, uh, so that so they are a bit vulnerable on that front, but have been trying to actually fix it over over the course of the pandemic. Um, and but the end result is that they basically overshot uh, in terms of their property market weakness. Now we're not talking really about prices here, particularly. We're talking more about construction uh, and construction volumes in particular of new homes, which have been such a key kind of pillar of excess Chinese growth for so long, and especially since the GFC. Uh, and so uh, 
if we swing over to the next page, you can see how big this bust has been so far. It's, it's been a very large fall in construction volumes. Uh, and there's a lot more ahead still in terms of, you know, today's sales and tomorrow's starts. Uh, so, so I'll yeah. just describe this for anyone sort of listening in is that um, we were looking at the Chinese property starts, the, the amount, the rolling annual. And sort of in 2007, 2008, when they were talking about, already talking about it, huge imbalances and building too much, it was sort of at a, at a, at a 900 on the, on the scale. Um, it sort of hit sort of almost uh, almost two in, in the 2012 to 2015 before falling back. And we had this big slowdown in 2015 that sort of brought it back to 1.5. And then from there, we sort of boomed up again to, to sort of 2.3, um, I think it's billion. You know, there's probably a few more zeros I might be missing. But yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, and we've fallen right back down to sort of 2015 levels. Um, but we could halve you know, from here and still be at levels that where there's actually a lot of building going on in the, um, in the, in the right. Chinese. Um, you know, it's not, it would be back to a more normal, it, it could halve and be back to a sort of more normal economy level. And so, and in fact, it will. It's really just a case of whether it happens all at once or over a longer period of time. So, yeah. so this this is a big, big deal, um, it, it, you know, in terms of the possible adjustment to a major, very major global imbalance, which is the excess Chinese property, which has led uh, or been the, the key input into excess Chinese growth, which in turn has driven so much of global growth for the last decade. Uh, and so this is where I look really, uh, I think most pointedly for a possible accident. If the US, you know, does uh, have a demand hiccup and then unwind this inventory excess into a, into a supply chain shock for China. Uh, now they're trying desperately to stabilize uh, you know, their property market without stimulating it. Uh, and they're having sort of not much success, to be frank. Um, at some point, perhaps they will get some traction. I don't know. They certainly don't want to send it running off again for another cycle. That I think is pretty much a certainty now that they won't do that. Uh, but, you know, can they kind of stop this free fall? Well, it remains to be seen. And I guess the point is, if they are smashed by uh, an external shock, then it's going to get all the more difficult to stabilise this market. And especially, again, we're, we're also in the context of zero COVID here. So this is a you know, perpetually locked down economy in some measure. Hmm. And um, the other part is, is you know, there's a psychological part of property. And um, in the past, you know, whenever they've had these slowdowns, uh, there's always been the... the um, I, guess, I think the expectation in, in China that that uh, the Chinese government's got your back and they're going to you know they're going to bail things out and uh, and and spend more money and push this again, and, and so um, it was by the dip. You know, property prices pull pull back. Here's my last chance to get into the property market at a at a, at a, at a reasonable price. You know, and get out and buy it. Um, this latest one has been longer and deeper and harder and and you got a question for a developer in particular um you know, a lot of developers going to the wall and um and really struggling in terms of their, their debt loads you know the question for them is uh you know could you convince them or how long would it take you to convince them that that the chinese government has really done a u-turn so so if they if they u-turn tomorrow i guess what i'm saying is if you're a property developer who's Who's, who's spent the last three years sort of juggling your um, your finances and trying to stay alive and and worried about whether you're going to default on all the debt, and then tomorrow the Chinese government turns around and says, "Hey guys, get out and borrow again." Um, are you going to do it, or are you going to try and use that as a as an opportunity to actually get to the stage where um, you know you can see your, your company lasting and, and and not sort of having those problems? Yeah. Might, I guess what I'm saying it might take a, a year or two at least of. In, in terms of changing, if they did change their policies before it take off, and so the question is, and we don't think they're going to change their policies, so so which is where which it gives it that 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 more downside to it. Yes, so so this is where we see uh, in in Damo's distinction, we see a you know a short cycle shock, possibly hitting a long cycle adjustment, um, mm -hmm. most critically, and so uh, you know if this goes wrong, uh, I've kind of use the analogy of Japan in 1989 for this, which is when, you know, Japan had had used property itself for, at that point, 
nigh on a decade to support its excess growth uh, as it as it went through its development phase. Uh, through the 80s, it had been become more and more property dependent, and uh, you know then it had a major property correction in in 1989, which really never ended, uh, and it shunted its growth into a kind of deflationary perpetual two percent. And I can I could see this happening in China, no problem at all. Now it would be different to you know because it's a communist country, but it would also be the same. I think you're very likely to see extend and pretend for all the banks. Uh, you'd see them clogged up with bad debt, but it'd be perpetually rolled over and kicked out. Uh, and so it starts to choke productivity uh, and you get a, you get some pretty nasty deflationary dynamics. Now, China is at the same time trying to reform in other ways to lift productivity. And in part, that is what this excess, squeezing out this excess property investment is about. But there is a there is a bad debt ball rolling into the banking system that comes with it. And so how that's handled, you know, kind of, you know, will, will factor in greatly into the impacts on growth. But anyway, so the possibility here is that China actually goes ex-growth. Um, uh, would it be done via crisis? I mean, we've discussed uh, many times the, the impossible trinity facing China, that is, you know, managing interest rates, um, currency value and capital flows all at once. You can generally only manage two of those. And right now that's looking very, very difficult. It's looking like that trinity is breaking down for China. Uh, and it's most obviously happening in that they've lost control of the yuan. It's actually been falling right out of bed, despite the various controls they have around it. We've had some rises in the last week or two on a bear market rally, but it still looks very vulnerable. Uh, and as the yuan falls, then there's the possibility that, you know, capital run flees China uh, more and more and you actually get rising yields as well, rising interest rates when they're actually trying to cut them to, to uh, support this, you know, Chinese property bust. So um, I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that these converging crises, uh, cyclical and structural or long, long, cycle versus short cycle actually culminate in in something that looks like a funding crisis for China, which would, in the end, I think, just result in something like this happened to Japan, like yield curve control, where its central bank is just for, forced to peg the rates where it wants it, and uh, they just lose control of the yuan, which would ultimately have, you know, big consequences for trade, trade wars, geopolitics, etc. But that would be a story for another day. Uh, uh, and, and But as you just put that in context as well, you know, this weak yuan is, is, is exporting deflation to everyone. So yes. it's making Chinese goods cheaper and cheaper. Um, so it's helping to sort of keep the, the inflation um, yeah. you know, story under control a bit more. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, and there's a whole bunch of other fallouts, but um, I guess at, at its heart, there's it, it, it's helping the overall situation it's just there's there's problems that will come as from that you know. yeah well, it's certainly helping inflation it doesn't help markets however no. markets hate it and if you look at the two big dumps in the S&P 500 this year both have coincided with the yuan falling out of bed uh, like they've just ticked down together so if we do get another yuan accident uh, then you can expect stocks to take another leg down uh, so so, you know, I think that's where, you know, the, there is a really large uh, uh, imbalance, global imbalance that could possibly unwind into a structural change for the global economy going forward um, is in China. Uh, so that brings us to, you know, the rest of the emerging markets, because um, what we've described in China there is more or less a pretty typical emerging market crisis where a falling currency, rising inflation and or falling asset prices uh, leads to, you know, fleeing capital and a rundown in Forex reserves and a sort of feedback loop um, of, of, you know, fleeing capital and uh, troubled external accounts and et cetera, et cetera. That's more or less the story of what happened in the Asian financial crisis. You know, the, the various ones you can go back over, uh, you know, the, the Mexican crises, the Latin American crises, they, they all have similar dynamics, not the same, but similar. Uh, and so I can't really point 
<clears throat> excuse me, to any particular emerging market. But, you know, we are seeing uh, a lot of pressures coming to bear on their yields right around the world, um, as, you know, as the US dollar rises with the Fed tightening uh, and capital flows out and into the US. Uh, and then you add the falling yuan and, and rising Chinese competitiveness and that hits them on the trade side as well as the capital side. And so you can see how both of those together start to make markets doubt, uh, you know, the sustainability of their external accounts. And that just feeds the beast and, the you know, capital yeah. flees even more. And, and and I guess, though, I'd say, David, although you're saying you can't highlight any, um, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, Turkey's sort of been rolling through some some systematic problems for the last few years. Uh, Sri Lanka's had some 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 shocking issues. Um, it, it's any one emerging market is is probably not big enough to to cause <clears throat> um, problems uh, ex, outside of China. Uh, it's it's more likely to be a, a a crisis that sort of rolls through a number of them in terms of the same characteristics. Um, you know, as, as you spoke about the problems with the lower Chinese um, yuan, meaning that they get um, substituted the yeah, they they start losing out on on their exports. Um, also, China imports less because the prices of the commodities that these countries are selling, um, you know, China uh, hits in terms of in terms of China uh, and and the external debt. And and so there's there'll be a number of characteristics you can see, but it's more that it'll roll through a number of different ones, like we saw in the Asian crisis, rather than it just being. So I think if you know if the Asian crisis had been Thailand on its own, you know, would have been fine, likely for 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 most other countries. But if it's a yeah, same characteristics, and yeah, that's where you can see an emerging markets sort of um, problem. Yes, of well, and of course, there's always the the possibility of a you know someone being ludicrously long or on the wrong side of an emerging markets trade, a kind of long term capital management hmm. uh, issue as well, a default somewhere that you know triggers a cascade in in uh, wall street leverage you know, there's always that chance yeah. as well yeah and and just put that in context long-term capital management was um sort of the late 90s and effectively what they were doing is um yeah just a very very big hedge fund um that just took some massive bets on i think it was russian ruble that at the time yeah. uh, but just really big bets with very with lots of leverage behind it and uh and so when they came unstuck and um uh then they had all these other you know, massive trades out there that they were trying to sell themselves and everyone found out what their other trades were and so started trading against them. And so, you know, while a lot of the other trades were actually relatively low risk, the fact that everyone knew what they were and could push them and try and break the system, so to speak, um, meant that, uh, you know, that, that had the potential of sort of pulling the market under. Yes. So there's always that black swan element to all of these things. Uh, so that brings us to, to our own little backyard. Uh, and how Australia uh, fares in all of these uh, deteriorating dynamics. Um, hey, Dave, I might just jump in there for a second. We've we've got a viewer question uh, come through from Carsten. Uh, so he's saying everyone's talking about a leg lower due to earnings downgrades, but if everyone's expecting it, is it not already priced into the share into the share market, uh, or is it creating sort of a low bar for an upside surprise? Excellent uh, question. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I would say is everybody talking about it because, you know, analysts haven't downgraded. So no. the consensus no. is the, that the downgrades aren't coming. Um, I mean, certainly there's no doubt the market's been oversold at various points, including up until this week where we've had this explosive rally. So, I mean, we're already seeing what you're describing, Carsten, <clears throat> with an explosive rally to the upside. Um, and there are, there are other factors like, you know, for instance, right now, US growth appears to be rebounding over the last few months um, with, uh, you know, oil prices falling away and, and a little bit of fiscal support going into the midterms. Um, and that might be, might be enough to sustain margins for another quarter. And so you may not see the downgrades, but, but I would argue that, um, you know, you've, you know, all of those things are self-defeating in the sense that, you know, they've still got a sticky inflation problem. So any sustained strength is going to result in interest rates going higher. That's the first point. Um, and the second one is this reverse bull whip effect uh, is going to be terrible for margins. And 
<clears throat> you know, like US corporate margins hit record highs during this inflation burst. Uh, and it's just going to go the other way because, um, you know, instead of having everything tight and pricing pressure everywhere and pricing power everywhere, you'll have the reverse. Everything will be loose on the size, supply side. Everyone's got too much inventory. Everyone's destocking and discounting. And, you know, uh, and wage growth is still strong. And so you'll get a margin crush. Uh, and I'm not sure that that dynamic is priced into the equity market. In fact, I don't think it is. Uh, like most of the falls so, so far, I think, have been more derating than, uh, you know, an actual kind of adjustment to the reality of what's coming. Um, but it's a fair point. And, I, I, you know, as we're seeing right now, we're going to see big bear market rallies. Uh, and, um, you know, when it gets overstretched and these, this discussion does reach consensus, then absolutely it will be time to buy. And, and um, the, the other thing I'd note is that what tends, how these tend to play out, as, as Dave was saying, the, the analysts mm -hmm. are, are usually the last one of the last to download, downgrade, but, you know, they're, they're well behind the strategists. So the strategists <laughs> sort of have all have this view about saying, okay, the, the markets are, um, uh, you know, we're looking at all these forward indicators and we're looking at interest rates and we're looking at the slowdown and inventory cycles and all that sort of stuff, and we think there's going to be a big earnings downgrade. Um Companies themselves are, are basically still asking the, their salespeople, how are you going? And they're like, well, we sold 10% last, we increased sales 10% last quarter, you know, I'm guessing we'll probably do the same again this year or, or it's a little bit weaker and so maybe it'll be only 8 or 9%. They're not building up their forecast by looking at the the, the, the fundamentals and, and, and the way the economy is turning. And so at turning points, they tend to be delayed. And that's where you'll get something... Um, yeah, I think probably Nike's probably a, a reasonable example of what you might see there is where, um, you know, they're sort of, um, you know, over the last month, they're probably down sort of 15, 20%, depending upon where you want to measure from, um, you know, and despite, you know, there's been a bit of a bounce, but but it's that type of thing where you'll see companies one by one reporting and then the whole sector will fall and, and then, you know, they might bounce back a bit, but, but it, it's a... You know, strategists have been warning about these types of things, but when the companies actually come out and finally go, yes, we, we, you know, our profits are going to be lower, that's when you see, you know, stock by stock, they'll all gradual, sector by sector, they'll all sort of gradually sort of factor in the, these these downgrades. Mm. Yeah. I mean, which raises the question, when would you buy? Uh, <clears throat> and typically I look for, you know, the more, the more obvious start of a recession when everyone's freaking out was when I would expect stock prices to be looking to bottom and we don't look like we're there yet to me so it's like when you when you start seeing you know 20,000 30,000 um headcount cuts from S&P 500 companies you know and that's when the recession proper has arrived and and uh that's when you'd be looking for bottom I think and and you've seen that in um you've seen the start of it from uh, the the pointier end, like the the the, the non profitable um, sort of some of the tech companies that are sort of the startups, uh, you've you've started to see that all the, the the cuts and things happening there. You just mm. haven't seen that spread through <clears throat> to the, sort of the more mainstream companies yet. Mm. So um, you know, if you're a long term investor, buying now versus buying you know six months ago or, or ten months ago is obviously pretty good. Yeah, you've you got in a lot lower than 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 what it was for ten months ago. So that, that's not a bad thing. You know, you, you, your um, uh, your your valuations are more normal. Um, you know, there, there might still be another 10, 20% downside, but, you know, if you're just accumulating uh, and you're not sort of trying to pick exactly the bottom, then, you know, now's obviously a much better level than than, than recent times. Uh, yeah, it'll just be a question now of saying, you know, do you want to try and wait for the exact bottom? Do you want to try and get it on the way up? Um, and, uh, you know, I th we think there's a bit more downside but you know, current levels are not terrible in terms of you know, in terms of getting in, and and the other thing is keeping in mind that these cycles um, over the last couple of years have played out at, at a much more rapid pace than than any other cycle. So uh, when the bounce does come, uh, it's probably going to be way faster than than everyone expects. So you know, starting to accumulate at some point, whether now is the right time or not, but starting to accumulate at some point is a is is a good idea. Um, yeah, and Damien, uh, uh, some of the conversations I have been having with some clients at the moment 
that are starting to buy is they're doing a dollar cost averaging strategy. You know, they know uh, now is much cheaper than, you know, uh, at the start of the year, and but they don't know when the bottom is. So over the next, you know, if it's six months or 12 months, they're just regularly uh, accumulating over that period. And then uh, yeah, they know over over the longer term, they're, they're likely, you know, their holdings are going to be much higher um, over the long term. Hmm. Oh, just sensible stuff. Um, so just to finish off uh, our imbalances, um, there is the uh, the old chestnut Australian consumer debt, uh, uh, you know, obviously related to mortgages. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, the, the beginnings of an unwind in this as the uh, RBA has raised rates <coughs> very aggressively, uh, in fact, more aggressively than the Federal Reserve, if you factor in that they meet more often. Uh, which and, and started later, and and started later. Yes. Um, uh, actually, actually, let me just put that in context as well for people who who weren't aware of it. So the the Federal Reserve tends to meet every six weeks, um, whereas the uh, the RBA meets every month. So yeah. effectively, um, you know, every four weeks the RBA has been raising raising rates by fifty basis points. Uh, every six weeks the Fed's been raising rates by seventy five basis points. So it's effectively the same speed of. Of, um, of rate rises, despite the fact um, that inflation has been much lower and, and wage growth has been much lower in, in Australia. Yes. Um, and and uh, debt's much higher and, well, anyway, we'll go through that. Sometimes. Yes. Well, we don't, we probably don't need to reiterate that whole thing, but but yes, all of that. And, uh, and so, you know, the Australian, well, the sort of monstrous Australian debt bubble has been quivering a little and house prices are falling at their fastest since 1983, if not ever. And uh, we don't expect that to change in the short term. Um, I guess the, the, the question is, you know, does this turn from a short cycle to a long start cycle reckoning for this particular imbalance? Um, I don't think so, because I, I think, as Damien mentioned, Inflation here is lower, especially wage inflation. Um, we do have a big problem in some of our energy cartels, but you know, I suspect the RBA will trim a lot of that inflation out of its core numbers over time if it has to, if that inflation persists. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. And um, critically, we just don't have strong wage inflation. It's still like 2.6, 0.7. Some of the leading indicators are up to kind of 2.9-ish. Uh, but you could add a, tack another uh, 100 basis points on that and still not be terribly panicked if you're up at 3.9 at this stage of the cycle with, you know, the globe rolling over and uh, an enormous wave of uh, cheap foreign labour about to flow into the economy over the next 12 months as immigration returns. So... Uh, not not a big inflation problem here. Not sticky. I, I don't think like it is in the US. I think that's largely based on wage inflation and and uh, services. Now there are <coughs> rents here are a problem. That's going to be sticky. So I'm not saying it's not not going to be something of an issue. But you can see from yesterday that the RBA is pretty cognizant of its own pet household debt bubble. Well, well, pretty cognizant. Saying they're starting to realise. So, well, I, I think the fact that they're the first central bank to back out, they were the last to start, they're the first to back out. Yeah, okay. uh, like that within the context of such aggressive tightening around the world, like I, I think they overcooked it, but uh, you know, they I think as well, they've got the yips, the first at they're the first ones to get the yips, and I think this is why this household debt imbalance and we know that there are particular issues with it as well over the next 12 months uh, as we've got this fixed rate mortgage reset as well which is an enormous pile of mortgages um, something like 40 percent of the overall market i think um which are all going to reset much onto much higher rates from covid low uh interest rates to floating rates and that's going to that's going to be a big consumption shock Australia because it's it's not really <coughs> um, so much about house prices that because they're existing mortgages unless people are, get into a sort of forced sales 
situations, but it will be a big economic shock because, you know, all of that that uh, uh, new repayment stress to banks is going to come out of discretionary income. So, uh, so that's going to really hit consumption hard. My view is that we won't see a short-term tipping into long-term adjustment for this. It'll just be another cyclical downturn for Australian household debt and mortgage uh, mortgages and and house prices, uh, albeit a deeper one than we've seen in some decades. But, you know, there are a lot of levers for both the banks and regulators to pull. Um, and don't forget, they're basically in bed with one another. In Australia, it's not like this is a um, arm's length regulated market. It's not. It's uh, you know, all of those res fiscal resources, monetary resources, macroprudential resources, they're all available to the banks if, the, if real stress arrives. So I would expect they'll manage through this, even though it, it should be a deeper downturn than we've seen in many years. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. So, so despite that, so it could be, so the net effect though is, yeah, it could be a, a ground. There's certainly, you know, reasons to... to um, Lots of reasons to, to see that such fast rises over such short period of time. Um, if they delay in terms of all those remediation acts, you know, there can easily be an accident that turns into a much lower one. But as you're saying, David, it's you know, you, you can the um, you know the, the support they're going to get means that you can you can ameliorate those problems and 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 not turn it into the massive end of cycle result. But um, uh, you know, there's still the potential. It's a massive end, end of cycle. It's there, just there it's not is. the base case. Well, yeah, that's right. Of course, there's there's tail risk here. Yes, mm. um, I just wouldn't say it's the base case. Um, that said, I, I do think, uh, assuming the Fed goes as far as further uh, and as far as we think it will, then and we get a global recession, then I, I think Australia has a recession too. I mean, whether whether you want to find that in the numbers or not, it will effectively be one. Um, even if it's hidden by mass immigration, so um, so there there we have it. So uh, just I guess flipping over to how we see markets playing out for the time being, um, uh, we've been pretty good on the on the FX so far, and we don't see that changing yet. Even though we've seen this incredible kind of blow off in the US dollar, uh, because we don't think the Fed's ready to ease back. We think that's probably got another leg in it. Um, similar argument for yields, um, uh, although, you know, with the RBA backing off, Australian yields are, are, are looking, uh, or bonds are looking much stronger than US now. And in fact, the 10-year, which has been, 10-year yield, which in Australia has been positive versus the US or for the last couple of years, um, I think largely because global markets lost faith in the RBA, uh, that's about to invert again and we're about to go negative versus us yields um, but we would still follow them up if they do spike so base case is a, is a global recession i think um lower equity still uh maybe another 20 percent downside who knows i think the idea of dollar averaging is very good um so and it's, an, and it's an earnings earnings story at the moment yes an earnings story we've had we've had the price derating but now we've got the earnings issue to confront. Uh, lower house prices, most certainly. Uh, and I think, you know, lower commodities still as well. Um, we've seen OPEC cut oil over the last day, and I've certainly become more bullish on oil uh, over the last few months, um, uh, partly because of OPEC, but actually more so because it turns out that this, the US shalers uh, are, uh, are less inclined to invest these days and more inclined to deliver enormous dividends uh, to their investor base. So that looks like a structural change, which is going to give us uh, higher oil over the longer term. Uh, but that being said, I still see the cyclical... And maybe not the longer term so much as the short to midterm. Oh, the medium term. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah. We're Long, longer term, the higher oil price will will accelerate the speed to um, yes, no, right. uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, medium term, sort of three years, I guess. Um, but 
you know, as China struggles through this global recession, I think, you know, most of the metals and the bulks, etc., all have legs lower. And and then this is a deflationary base case for 2023. Um, so at least inflation coming down and um, some parts of the world being being heavily deflationary. Um, so I guess I would add one caveat to this narrative, and that is, you know, there's the one kind of strange outcome that we might see is if we did get a Lehman moment of some sort, uh, what, could it possibly happen before the Federal Reserve was ready to pivot? That is, while we still have relatively strong inflation, and what would that mean if, say, for instance, a Credit Suisse went under and suddenly the Fed's forced to print to uh, to support the financial system versus, you know, what it wants to do, which is tighten and, and squash inflation? Uh, could that result in a, you know, an inflationary outcome, an unexpected one, because we just never managed to squeeze inflation out of the system? Possibly. Um, but in that event, you would expect to still see a pretty potent recession after such a shock. So I think that would be deflationary. Uh, and as well, this is where the Bank of England comes in in an interesting way, where we've seen the UK uh, go through its uh, self-inflicted crises over the last few weeks. Um, what it's done is is uh, it's it's committed to some QE, so it's pegging the long end of its um, yield curve, whilst at the same time saying it wants to still continue to rate, raise rates uh, at the short end. So it wants to fight inflation while printing money, which is actually plausible to do because, in, in effect, all you, you're doing is printing to, for, to control your curve, which is, you know, it is a little inflationary, but if you're also raising interest rates at the short end, same time and potentially at the long just not allowing them to blow up then uh, you could potentially actually have a kind of printed tightening uh, so i'll leave you with that uh, rather unusual circumstance um, and uh, and that's about it for our lehman assessment Thanks for that, Dave. Uh, we do have a question from uh, Web Access 11. So uh, he's, and, and this is quite typical of lots of conversations I'm having with people at the moment. Uh, he's saying he's got a proper property settlement in a week uh, and he's wondering where to put the funds to keep them safe. Uh, so he's saying he wants to stay out of property for six to 12 months. The obvious answer is to put the money in, in the bank, cash in the bank. But he's worried about global banking situation and possible bank bail-ins. So, do you have any any sort of commentary around that? Uh, well, I mean, personally, I'm not a believer in in the likelihood of Australian bank bail-ins. Uh, in part because I don't see us going through this long cycle a long cycle reckoning at this point. Like I think, even if we had a really big recession and accident, we still have you know, the fiscal and monetary resources to bail it out. Um, and I still think that any bail-in, although I, I accept that there have been, you know, legislative changes to to APRA rules and stuff that, that could enable bail-in, I just think it would be so un unbelievably unpopular politically that I, I'm just not sure it's, it's possible. Uh, and, you know, although there may be, you know, very powerful interests that were pursuing it, uh, I mean, the Australian politician, the one thing that they probably would respond to is uh, that's that scale of pressure <laughs> from from households who are who are going to lose savings. Uh, for that to happen, I think we'd have to see something really catastrophic. Yeah. So the other thing to note then is, um, you know, so that that sort of basically says the big four are, 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 are very likely to get some sort of bailout before you'd need a bail-in. Yes. Um, could, if you're in, if you're in a very small bank um, or, or credit union that's done, been doing the wrong thing, um, could could one of those <laughs> blow up? Absolutely. Would you but lose, again, your, that, would you lose a deposit? Unlikely, but. Yeah, they wouldn't bail those in anyway. They'd just, they'd just be bought by one of the majors um, overnight. Probably. 
managed by APRA. But but yes, point taken. If you wanted the really safe option, stick it in a, stick it in and, a big bank. And, and another one, one, and one, um, one bearing the, the brand of the sovereign is probably, you know. Yeah. And, and then the other one is the government debt is is go for some very short dated government um, bonds, uh, you know, six month or one year government bonds. Um, you know, as long as you're not look, the capital capital gain and loss on a one year bond is very low anyway. But um, you know, if you're looking to hold it for that long, you know, you're talking basis points of of, of how much you could you uh, the capital value could go up and down, and you, and you know what it's going to be at the end of it anyway, because you because you, you're getting a hundred dollars back or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think if that's you know if you if you're really really concerned, then then um, uh, then it comes down to saying, well, do you think the Australian government's going to go broke in the next year and not be able to afford, not be able to afford to pay its debt and 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 not print money to to bail itself out? Um, I think that is extremely unlikely, and. and in any case, you know when when uh, countries do default, they almost always default on foreign investors. Um, they it is extremely rare that they ever default on on local investors because local investors vote, and so which is the same argument as the bail in, really. Yeah, yeah, it's just you one step closer, one step. I guess once you know, one, there there is a potential for the yeah. The, the, it's a non-zero, but very, very, very small chance that that you know major banks could fall over and yes, and, and have to worry that. But and then the the Aussie Australian government. And if you want to go full circle and say, well, that might happen, then buy crypto. <laughs> then you'd be taking no. some, some real risk. No, that's that's a massive risk. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, that's a, David's not saying buy crypto. Oh, David. I'm not <laughs> saying buy crypto. He's got that not at all. That, was, that, that, that let, yes. let me say that was a joke. Yes. Yes, that's right. There's uh yes, crypto assets will will pitch themselves for that, but the volatility is is extreme. Um, yeah. so yes. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks guys. So yeah, sounds like a very unlikely situation. Um so now we have our viewer question of the week. Uh so this is for viewers to have some discussion in the comment section over the coming days. The question for this week is which economic imbalance is likely to crumble first? So feel free to post your thoughts and engage with us and some of the other viewers over the coming days. So uh, that pretty much wraps us up for today. So Damien, thank you very much for sharing your insights. And Dave, thanks again also. Pleasure. Thanks. Excellent. Uh, so uh, we do welcome your feedback on this podcast, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. Uh, if you do have any ideas, please drop it in the comment section below or send us an email to contact at nucleuswealth.com. Just a reminder, this is general advice and does not take into account your personal situation. Uh, if you do want to discuss your personal financial situation, please go to our website at nucleuswealth.com forward slash contact and you can book a call with me. Don't forget to like the video now. And finally, if you know of anyone that might get some value out of today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you can please share it with them. Also, if you'd like to see more of our previous episodes and content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content. And to stay up to date with news from us, you can follow us on all major social media. So for myself, Damien, Dave, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.